Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. In this episode, Eric Lee on Labour Start's global solidarity campaigns. Professor Mel Sims on why social media is not a magic bullet for organising. And Bazit Mahmood with his Radical Roundup. Hello, 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 and welcome to Union Jews, the UK's only All Things Union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and we've got a cracking show lined up for you this time. But first, answer me this. What is 25 years old, has mailing lists of 100,000 people in 21 different languages, Twitter feeds in 13 languages, Facebook pages in seven languages, a website with close on 1 million visits per month, and has been campaigning for workers' rights around the world? Yes, it's Labour Start, and I'll be chatting with founder, guiding light and icon, Eric Lee. Professor Mel Sims, now firmly back in the saddle, I'm pleased to hear, shares her thought for the week with us. Complementing Eric's expertise, she considers digital organising. Magic bullet or false dawn? And of course, Bazit Mahmood will preview this week's Radical Roundup, all the union stories you won't see in the mainstream media. Let's kick off this week with some of the latest trade union news. Here's Basit Mahmood, editor of Left Foot Forward, with his preview of the Radical Roundup. Welcome, Basit. Thank you so much, Simon. Now, we've got quite a few interesting stories on this week's Radical Roundup, looking at the themes of low pay and poor conditions for workers. So we'll start off with a rather interesting survey carried out by Unite, which showed a far greater driver shortage in the bus industry than previously indicated. The survey shows that the principal reason why drivers are leaving is due to low pay, poor conditions and long hours. Over 500 activists working throughout the UK took part in the survey, which found that there were bus driver shortages at 99% of bus garages. The survey found that driver shortages are getting worse, with 79% of respondents recording that vacancies had increased since the pandemic began in March 2020. Now Unite is calling for bus companies to stop trying to sweep driver shortages under the carpet and start tackling fundamental problems in the industry. Now sticking to the theme of low pay, the TUC says that the Prime Minister must must increase sick pay so workers don't face financial hardship this Christmas, commenting on the Prime Minister's announcement on Saturday that the new COVID-19 variant Omicron. TUC General Secretary Francis O'Grady said that we all want to stay safe and stop this variant from spreading. France added that a failure to do so will have a devastating impact on public health as well as the economy. France has added that more workers may now need to self-isolate and we need to protect them from financial hardship, urging ministers to raise sick pay to the level of the living wage and make sure every worker can get, get it. And finally, GMB members at Panasonic Cardiff have walked out for a third time in a dispute over low pay. Workers are set to down tools on the 6th of December with more dates expected to be announced soon. That's all from me in this week's Radical Roundup. You can find the full Radical Roundup on Wednesday at Left Foot Forward's website. 
Back to you, Simon. Thank you very much. Indeed, Bassett, that is shocking, That those stats about bus driver shortages. I mean, the sector's in such a mess anyway because of deregulation. And uh, it's, it's almost as if, if you wanted to, to design deliberately a, a kind of race to the bottom scenario when it comes to employment terms and conditions, yeah, I mean, you'd be hard put to come up with anything better than, than the British bus sector. And Francis, of course, absolutely spot on in the call for proper sick pay. We can't, you know, if, if we're going to learn the lessons of the last wave of COVID for this latest wave, then one of those lessons has to be that you cannot have a situation where people can't afford to self-isolate if that's what the medical and scientific advice is. It was, it's, it's, it's suicidal in an economic and public health sense. Just have to hope that the government has got that one under its belt. Now to our feature guest. I'm delighted to welcome Eric Lee onto the Union Jews podcast. Uh, Eric was born in 1955 in New York City and is the founding editor of Labour Start. He wrote The Labour Movement and the Internet, The New Internationalism in 1996 and has published several other books. Eric was an editor for the social democratic magazine The New International Review and has also worked as a computer programmer. He lived in Israel for a while and while he was there he was politically active in the peace movement and the left generally. In 1998, Eric moved to London to work as an ICT coordinator for Labour and Society International, whilst also working as a consultant for British and international trade unions. His articles have been published around the world, and he's a frequent speaker at a variety of conferences. Eric Lee, founder and, and guiding light for Labour Start, you're very welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming here. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a great pleasure. Um, I mean, Labour Start truly, truly is a bit of a phenomenon, isn't it? What's, what's the kind of footprint of it? I, I was reading somewhere that even 10 years ago, you had getting on for three quarters of a million monthly hits on the website. I can't comment on hits on the website. I don't count them. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, th- I don't think they're very important. And, and when people tell me how many hits they're getting, I tell them, well, that's, that's nice. But it doesn't. what really matters is how many people support our campaigns, how many people are on our mailing lists, how many receive the mailings, how many respond to the mailings, how many people become voluntary correspondents, how many people are engaged in the project. And that's big. Those are big numbers. So, I, I mean, how big is big? Big is um, the English language mailing list, which is our largest mailing list. And this is a very clean list with no duplicates and no dead people on it and no bad addresses on it. It's automatically clean. Is over 71,000 names. 71,000. Wow. Yeah. And presumably that, that embraces the English-speaking world. It, it does. And it's uh, very strong in the UK, obviously, but also in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and a lesser footprint in the US. Sure. But that is just one part of the global population. And I think you, you translate into over 25 languages, I think. Yeah, we have. I mean, we have the capacity to do something like 35 languages these days. We have mailing lists in many languages. The biggest ones would be in French and German, Dutch, Spanish, Italian. So there's something like um, overall about 123,000 names on the lists. Wow. And in terms of, I, I mean, I know you say you don't count the hits on the website, but this is all about engagement and, and, and dr- driving people to action, as it were, encouraging people to action. So, so that's the mailing list. But what about kind of social media like Facebook, Twitter and stuff like that? We have a very extensive presence of social media. We, on a, I think Twitter is probably largest. I don't even remember now. We were talking for the English language versions, tens of thousands of followers on Twitter and Facebook. But we have also, we, we, we drill down. So you can have labor start on on Twitter will be in Portuguese. It'll be in Spanish. It'll be in Italian. It'll be there'll be Canadian versions, English and French, separate ones. And they have the Canadian versions have very large followings. So 
across the board, it's quite a large audience. So that's the size and shape of the uh, of the organization. You've been going since what 1998, I think, hasn't right. it? Yeah. Uh, so. But what does it do, I suppose, is the question. I, you know what it does. I know what it does. But listeners, if listeners are thinking, wow, Labour Star, that's great. Impressive footprint. But what does it do? Yeah. And this used to be an easier question to answer because we do more now than we used to do, more types of things. So first, first of all, we were founded as a news website. And so we don't actually write news or publish news ourselves. We link to news stories that appear elsewhere. And I don't do the linking people sometimes quite often, right, to me and say, Eric, did you notice this story that appeared in The Guardian? I'll tell them, but it doesn't matter whether I did. It matters whether, whether one of my volunteer correspondents did. And we have probably about a 1,000 now volunteer correspondents who look for news and post the links to Labor Studies. That's the first thing Labor Studies is a news website. Okay. Second thing, and more famous than that, in a sense, is the campaigns we do. And we've even, the campaigns have been so sort of successful that people have actually written to me in the past saying, you really should have a website too. You tell, we actually have a website. You just, <laughs> you just didn't stumble on it. So the campaigns, which we can talk about, it was, is what we're best known for these days, these quite large uh, campaigns for trade unions. But we also do, until the pandemic, fairly regular global conferences, big ones sometimes. Like in, in Berlin, we had quite a large, that was our largest conference. We had in Istanbul, we had in Sydney, Australia, we had in London, we had in Washington, D.C., we had in Toronto. So these were quite large open conferences that we were doing. We published books. We just published another book this year, you know, and other stuff. Normally, normally campaigns come to Labor Start through the global union federations. I mean, that's the connection I'm, I'm, I'm driving at. Right. The campaigns come to you. You don't go out and get the campaigns. It's not like you say, oh, I like the look of that campaign. I'll pick that up. It's the people who are organizing in the workplace on the ground who take the step to approach Labor Start and say, can you help? It's both. It's, it's usually the Global Union Federation writes to us and says, we, oh, very often they say in advance, next week we're going to come to you with a campaign about Algeria or Myanmar. Please get ready. Um, sometimes we spot something that seems really important and we write to the union saying, would you like a campaign? And unions surprisingly, even though we say, would you like a campaign that will drive thousands of people to send messages of protest and solidarity and it will cost you absolutely nothing? Would you like that? And surprisingly, many unions say, no, not really. Which makes you kind of wonder, why would you not want that kind of support? Do, is, it, is there a split between unions who operate at a nation-state level and international trade union confederations? Because I imagine international trade union confederations will look at Labour Star and will recognise many features of the way Labour Star operates with the way they operate. That might not be the case for nation-based unions. Well, what's happening is at the global level, and we call these now global union federations. They used to be called international trade secretariats, which was a bad name. So they came up with global union federations, which as every British listener knows means guffs. And that sounds really stupid, but that's what we call them. We call them global union federations. And they, we work with all of them. I mean, there isn't one of them really that hasn't given us campaigns and worked with us closely. Most of them even donate money to Labour Stock, which we're very thankful for. And, and that's, we have such a long term, I mean, this goes back 20 years and more of working with these global unions, that that's, it's a natural process. The, the, where we get the reluctance is unions at national level or local level that don't really know us. Yeah. And, and they'll say, it sounds great, but who are you exactly? And okay, you could say, why don't you get to know them? But with working with the entire world, so obviously there are going to be unions in, you know, Argentina or India that don't actually have no experience working with us. Yeah. yeah and, and I mean, that's, 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 the unique feature of Labour Start. There is nothing like this. Right. There's nothing like this out, out there, which is why it's so impressive. It's kept going so long and developed so much and become so multifaceted. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, 
Labour start campaigns have literally saved lives in the past, haven't they? They, they, they have. Look, when, when unions come and say, is this campaign going to work? Is it going to achieve the results we want? We, we tell them generally no. To be honest, most campaigns that we do, not just online campaigns, but traditional offline campaigns, you don't win victories. I know with the union, Simon, that you and I both worked with, the Communication Workers Union, campaigned for all kinds of things, looking back historically, didn't actually win. Didn't win in the long run. Weren't able to stop all kinds of terrible things that we wanted to stop. With our campaigns, what we tell unions is we'll do our best, and we might. We might save lives. We might get someone out of jail. We might help you win a collective bargaining agreement with an employer. But there's no guarantees, and it depends really on the union making its own effort, big effort, to throw everything it can to support the campaign. Yeah. yeah. So Labour not acts as a catalyst to unions' activities. Yeah. I mean, if Labour start picks up a campaign and the union says, oh, that's great, it's off our books now, we don't have to worry about yeah. it, then it's clearly not going to have as much momentum and traction exactly. and, and, and push. And I think, to be honest, there are some unions, I won't name them, that are quite bureaucratic and old-fashioned, and you can almost sense the process. Like the general secretary sees there's this possibility, he passes it on to someone on his staff, you know, take care of that. That person fills in a form, sophisticated to labor side. It gets crossed off his to-do list. The general secretary's crossed off his to-do list. It's done. And it becomes our work, labor starts work. And that's not a good way to campaign. That's not how we want to do it. Right. If we go way back, way back to, to 1998, where did the idea come from? I know a couple of years before that, you published a book about the the organizing, the solidarity possibilities of, right. of new technology, information technology, as it stood then in the, in the 1990s. But it's a step from the book to Labour Start to what Labour Start is now. Yeah. It goes back a little bit further, if I can, I'll to get yeah, back to a couple of years before please that. Do. I was uh, happily living, living in Israel and working on a kibbutz where I was a computer programmer, but there was no internet. And, and I was uh, uh, approached by people in Tel Aviv who worked for an international organization called the International Federation of Workers' Education Associations the WEAs, the IFWEA. And they said, we'd like to do a magazine. We'd like you to edit our magazine. I said, sure, whatever, I agreed. And they said, we'd like the first issue and the second issue to be about computer communications and the labor movement. So, so I, I said, yeah, that's fine. What, is, what, does that, what does that mean? What do you mean by computer communications? Like fax machines? I really had no idea. I mean, I, I used computers every day, but I used them to do what you used computers for in 1990 or 1992. And they said, no, email. I'm thinking, what, what is the point of email when a fax machine does the exact same thing? Little did I understand where. <laughs> I mean, I, I went to a cousin of mine in, who knew this kind of stuff and asked him, okay, I, I get what this is, but that is, what is the, what is the, the internet? <laughs> it's, that'll be what if you're an academic. I knew nothing about this. Yeah, nothing. These, days, these days people will say to you, what's a fax machine? Well, exactly. I was given the task of learning about that. And then I began a regular column in this publication called Workers' Education, a column about union or working class labor movement use of the internet and computer communications in general for several years. That led to the book because I had made contact with all these people, many of them in the UK, interestingly. The UK was really a, a hotbed of development. They had something called the Labor Telematics Project. There were people who were doing, they were holding international conferences in, in places like Manchester. People came from all over the world to discuss how to use these new, uh, new communications technologies. So I knew these people from writing the book. And in the book, I proposed something like Labor Start. I thought unions would do it. They didn't. So we did Labor Start as a kind of initially uh, proof of concept. Right. That was the idea. Right. We would do this and groups like what became the ITUC or these global union federations, they would pick up on it and run with it. Instead, they liked what I had done. They said, okay, well, that's good enough. We'll just use what Eric made. And that's what happened. It was kind of a, I didn't, I didn't anticipate the Labor Start would actually survive for 20 years plus years. 
survive and thrive. In, in terms of what the future holds, I suppose there are a couple of things to, to, to think about. Labour Start, perhaps inevitably, is strongest in the English-speaking world, but has a footprint in, in over two dozen other, other countries. The parts of the world where there isn't a footprint, is there a, is that a frustration? Is there ongoing concentration to try and improve the, the coverage? Especially as, of course, many of those countries will be the places where there are the worst labour practices, the worst labour exploitation. Right. Well, so, I mean, some of those we, we actually have covered. For example, Chinese. We, every Labour Start campaign is in Chinese. We have a big mailing list in Chinese. We get, these are obviously not people generally in mainland China. These are people in Taiwan and, and Hong Kong mm-hmm. who, who are involved. But yeah, I mean, I'll give an example. We have um, an intern working for us now. Who's, she's a student uh, in Toronto studying labor relations. We're not allowed to pay her, strangely. We normally pay interns, but I'll be upfront. She's an unpaid intern because it's part of her academic work. She has to do this. And I asked her, as I ask every intern, do you speak anything other than English? And normally with North Americans, it was like, I know a little French. That's it. And she says, well, I know Yoruba. Yoruba is a language spoken by, as I learned on Wikipedia, 50 million people. I mean, it's bigger than most mm. European languages. Mm-hmm. 50 million people, and not only in Nigeria, but mostly in Nigeria. I said, well, can you translate our campaigns into Yoruba? And she does. So we were able to announce across social media and mailings recently, Labor Star is the first global labor project or institution that has ever campaigned in an indigenous African language. Wow. Earlier in the year, we had an intern, a paid intern, of who had been at Cornell University. Did she speak a second language? She did, Punjabi. We had a dozen campaigns in Punjabi, a Malias in Punjabi. When she left us, that stopped. But it's a start and stop process. But the idea yeah. is we will, and our rule has been any language that we have somebody prepared to translate on a volunteer basis, we will do. So we've done languages with very small audiences, but we're very focused now on, on African and Asian languages. Right. right. Well, blimey. I mean, I, I understand absolutely that it's going to be stop-start because there is not the resource within Labour Start to say, right, we're going to fund something to look at look at work in the languages of West Africa. For, right. for, for example, you've got to have people coming to you in the way that, that the way you describe. But the energy and the traction that that process generates will eventually, hopefully, reach a sort of critical mass, a critical volume. And, and then you have liftoff, you have self-sustaining right. stuff in the sense you'll have people who are based in the countries or who are who are more permanently attached or committed to Labour Start than interns can be. Um, yeah, wow, that's that's encouraging. Yeah. What, what about what are some of the other challenges? I read somewhere there was some there was some criticism that perhaps there was a, a too much of a gender imbalance amongst people who were involved in in Labour Start. I haven't read that. Um, most people wouldn't know who's involved in Labour Start because we don't have there are no names yeah. appearing on the website. We created initially in 2015, uh, fairly unsuccessfully, and revived in 2018 more successfully an executive. Labor says governance, people ask me five, six years ago, what's your governance policy? How does it work there? It's like, I talked to Derek and sometimes to Andrew. That was the, you know, there was, yeah. no, there was no governance. You know, so it was being run in a very haphazard fashion. I told you, would tell people the model for Labor thought was not the international trade union movement model. It was the model of Linux as an operating system. <laughs> but there was the guy who founded it and people helped him. There, yeah. was, there, was, there was no model. So we worked that way. The, the executive is, is a balanced executive. It is, um, Probably about fifty percent female. I mean, the meetings are certainly fifty, 50 yeah. and and it's a, a 
not a real regional balance because we don't have enough people from, say, Africa and Asia, mm. but it's certainly there's only one per country. There's, you know, I'm the right. only person from the UK. There we have people from Canada and other countries and, and across Europe. And also, quite, quite, it's, the problem is not that it's overly male. The problem is it's too old. I was going to say, what's the succession plan? Yeah, this is a problem. This is a problem that fortunately we share with everybody else in the labor movement. It's an, it is an ongoing problem. Yeah. We've recruited a number of people, particularly the executive, who are considerably younger than I am. I'm, as, as you can tell from the rate, you know, my voice, I'm, I'm quite a young person to begin with, but I, I'm aware that we had one of our most, uh, probably actually our most active correspondent and activist who really did much of the work for labor thought passed away sadly a couple of years, surprised a heart attack. And that really rang the alarm bells that sadly some of us will actually die and eventually far in the future. And we do have thought about this a lot. Uh, the intern program, part of the reason we do it is they don't actually, in a sense, contribute that much to labor stuff, but we're training a cadre of people who pass through yeah. the project. And we work closely with the Global Labor University. They're uh, an ILO project, International Labor Organization project, teamed up with the university in South Africa and one in Germany, and hundreds of young trade unionists from all over the world pass through it. Some of them are fantastic. They learn about an international vision of trade unionism, and we've had several of them as um, interns. And they stick around. Woman from Ghana, a young guy from Israel. It's been great working with them. So, the, and we've done. They've been in our conferences and done a lot of our stuff. Our Berlin conference was organized by Global Lab University um, graduates. So they're great. So that's the way we're going to get younger people. But our problem is we're in a movement that is an aging movement that doesn't easily transform to, you know. Indeed, but and there is, as you say, a shared jeopardy and a shared responsibility, shared opportunity to, to do something mm. about that. And one of the things Labour Start could do, I suppose, with its footprint is identify like best best practice across the, across the globe or across the area of, of its footprint. Is that something that's kind of on the, on the stocks? Um, not as much as you think, partly because now there are lots of academics and others who research this stuff. And, and talk about it. And it's, I mean, wh when my book came out in 1996, I, I could, I had a page in the book, the, the you know, appendix one, which was a list of every trade union website in the world. It was one page. Yeah. Yeah. So if you'd ask me to look at best practice, yeah, give me half an hour. I'll tell you how, how they're all doing. How would you research it today? You'd have to look at every single country in the world, every trade union movement. And, and yet we have, um, a lot of the campaigns and stuff do revolve around younger workers. Let me give you one, one example. Mm. I'm looking at my, my list here. I mean, one of the recent victories we had was we did a campaign earlier in the year. We were approached by the Israeli Trade Union Federation, the Histadrut, which is unique because it's not like the TUC in Britain. You actually join the Histadrut and you're allocated to a particular union. You're, you're a card-carrying Histadrut member. Like you, there's no such thing as a card-carrying TUC member. And Histadrut was doing a, and there's been a lot of interesting organizing campaigns among people previously considered to be unorganizable, like at McDonald's, when other countries have really struggled, they've just organized it. They did a, the campaign on the affiliate of what in Britain is called Just Eat. Yeah. And there it's called 10 bis, which sort of means have a bite. Right. Right. But it's the number 10. And it was a union busting company, even though it was based in the Netherlands, even though it pretends to have an ethical policy. We know in the UK what these companies are like. And they're the same in Israel. And they had us do a big campaign. We got quite a large campaign going. I mean, many thousands of people supporting these workers. We suspended the campaign at a certain point and sort of forgot about it. Then they sent us word, company caved. Company recognized the union. So that's a, and that, these are very young workers, right? Who, 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 who rides these little uh, bikes around towns delivering our, our, our burgers to us in the evening? It's them. So that was very, that was, a, whether that means that those, Workers themselves become interested in labor start, become part of I don't know. But we had a very young intern working with us from Israel at the time. 
he was the link between us yeah. and those people. And he was explaining to me the whole network of people. A guy I know who comes to Leibniz conferences has been our translator, young guy. One of his friends, young woman, she works for the, the daily newspaper of the trade unions there, writing stuff at Labor Start. This guy, they're all very young. So that, if you ask, how are we doing in Israel? We've got a bunch of people in their 30s. <laughs> you know, I wish that were true everywhere. But yeah. that's in the case where it worked and, and led to a victory in a campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, it would be remiss of us to not give ourselves the chance of being cheered up during the, this conversation. Yeah. So tell us more about, pick out from, from your scrapbook, as it were, pick, yeah, yeah. pick out some, some more examples of successful campaigns where Labour Start has made the difference. So I thought I'd look at just the last like four or five months to see. Yeah. And, and sometimes I worry that if I'm going to do that, I'm going to find none, right? Because it's entirely possible. You can look back and say, we didn't win a single campaign in the last six months. But the opposite is the case. This has been, uh, in spite of the fact that the campaigns are not significantly larger than they were. They're not. It's not like mm-hmm. they've suddenly become million-strong campaigns. We read about these incredible online campaigns all the time. Other, other organizations, they get staggering numbers. We're not interested, actually, in getting large numbers. We're just in getting results. I, I was asked recently mm-hmm. by, by um, a trade unionist at the European Transport Workers Federation. She asked me, you know, how did our campaign on, on Hungary do? I said, how did it do it? That you can answer that. You tell me that those workers get what they wanted or not. It doesn't matter how many people signed signed up to support it. I mean, it matters. But the really important, the, the measure of success is did we achieve what we wanted to achieve on the ground? There is a correlation there, but it's not necessarily as straightforward as Ex- one. Well, exactly. And, and we see in, in the outside world, in the real world, massive campaigns about things like, I don't know, climate change or stopping war. Have no impact at all, as far as we can tell, right? With very large numbers of people supporting them, very often have no impact at all. And campaigns that are tiny sometimes kind of mm. it depends mm. who and when. So look, look the um, most recent one was actually quite cheering. Uh, there's a young Turkish Canadian academic named Jihan Erdal, who who is gay and has a partner who lives in, in Canada at the moment and is enrolled in some university there, and he visited Turkey. Uh, not not long ago, or like it's earlier in the year, and he was a supporter of the opposition party there. Doesn't support Erdogan's uh, mm-hmm. authoritarian mm-hmm. regime, and and got arrested and put in a part of a trial of a very large number of members of this party for something he, they think he put on Facebook several years ago. He denies it. He's a member of a union in Canada, the largest union in Canada, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, CUPE. So CUPE asked for a campaign. He said one of our members is in jail in Turkey. And he's Turkish, but he's also Canadian, and he's a member of that union. That union said, you know what, campaign, built up a big campaign largely in Canada, the full support of his partner was helping us a lot, got the word out, campaigned for months, videos, pictures, the whole bit. He was not released, but he was let out of jail. He's still being held in Turkey, I think at the moment, waiting to be called back, but he's not in jail. He's at home with his family. Right. So, and his partner's flown out there to see him, so... Wonderful success. He, he's very grateful. He sees that the global campaign raised awareness. Yeah. And we got people on board. Like, it's not just, did you get X number of people? Who were the people? You know, Peter Tatchell, yeah. who'll be familiar to many mm-hmm. of the listeners. Peter Tatchell was a big supporter of this campaign. He and I co-authored an article that appeared recently about it. Peter's pushed the campaign a lot. And his, he has a very large social media yeah. following. So these came, they became quite a large campaign. And we got the, the preliminary results we want. He's not in jail. That's one. Okay. On a bigger scale, this is one guy, right? On a bigger scale, sometimes we do campaigns on countries where uh, we're playing an educational role just by talking about a country. Countries that none of us could find on a map, including myself, yeah. with any ease. Kyrgyzstan. I have to say, I struggle with that one. <laughs> yeah, we all do. How do you spell it? So, actually, when I did the first campaign in Kyrgyzstan, I actually put a map in the mailing saying, 
your arrow pointing, like in between countries you've heard of, like Iran, whatever, there's this country called Kyrgyzstan. You've never heard of it. It doesn't matter. Kyrgyzstan has like all those countries in Central Asia, an authoritarian regime to one degree or another. It's It was a playing around with the idea of a very restrictive trade union law. I mean, restrictive much more than we talk about restrictive trade union laws in Britain. I mean, a really restrictive trade union mm. law where every union would be government controlled. And it bounced back and forth. We were asked by the International Trade Union Confederation and several of the Global Union Federations to support the Kyrgyzstan workers. Not that any of them have heard of Labor Start. And and the Russian unions get very involved in this stuff because they still have influence and, and interest in these areas. And we have good connections with the Russian unions. And, the, and the, the last latest news was the government has rolled back the plan and is not changing the labor law. So that's not just one academic guy that's getting out of jail. That's an entire nation now where workers can breathe a sigh of relief. They can keep their independent unions. Yeah. And I think those two illustrations are, re- are really good overview of the range of activity that Labour Start mm. makes possible and is in, engaged with. And I suspect we could talk all day about, about, about such things. Switching horses a little bit. Sure. Of course, Labour Start's primary mode of communication is, is through its mailing list. So yes. I think that's right to say. And I remember many, 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 many years ago attending a, an event at which you were a speaker and you said, the thing about emails, the thing is it's push technology. You get an email, you've got to open it. And that's kind of probably not so true <laughs> a- a- right. anymore. But but do the, does the mailing list approach, I mean, it clearly works, otherwise you wouldn't carry on using it. But but people are saying, well, people are on smartphones, people have got other means of connecting with the internet and all, all, all the rest of it. Are you still as comfortable as you were with the mailing list uh, approach? And if not, what are the ways in which you think some change is, is desirable? I am more convinced of what, what I said for years ago. On this one thing, like I was wrong about a lot of things, but this is one thing I was right about. And the re- reason why I know this, and I've tested this and I've shown this back when we could have meetings, you know, whatever, four or five years ago, I would show this to people in practice. I'd do a seminars with unions. I'd say, you know what, we're going to launch a campaign right now. Let's, let's go live with everything and let's see what the results are over the next few hours. Um, I did this for the uh, European Trade Union Institute. So we trade unions from all over Europe. Let's do this. We have like a two-day seminar. Let's see what happens tomorrow, what the results are. So you launch a campaign. And day one, you do all the social media, all your Twitter or Facebook stuff. People start retweeting it and forwarding it. At the end of the day, the, even though thousands of people have seen what you've done, the number of people who've clicked through and added their names to your campaign is tiny. Tiny. Now, obviously, if you had you know, the Twitter following of you know, Donald Trump, you know, whatever, you have 100 million followers, but okay, you'll, you'll get a larger response. But with unions, I mean, it just doesn't work that way. And people read about it. You can say that people, we've raised awareness of the campaign through Twitter and Facebook. We've not actually gotten people engaged. And then I would show to people, okay, I'm going to push the button now, do the mailing to the English list, 71,000 names. Let's check in an hour. And then you see this massive flood coming mm. in. Now, part of it is you could say, well, who uses email anymore? Just older people. And I'm thinking, yeah, that also means trade unionists. Yeah. Yeah, but it's not just older people, is it? Is it because um, because I don't know if you've any done any analysis on the people who respond to, to the campaigns? That would be an interesting piece of work to, to to check out the age, right? For, for for example, but you know, I struggle with the notion that email mailing lists are out of date, right? Because although you, although everyone communicates by email now, and although people are mostly drowning in emails, if the messaging is right that email will stand out from all the others. And it will stand out in a way that's different from a tweet standing out or a Facebook post standing out or an Instagram post ma- ma- making out. So, I, you know, I'm, I would be slow 
to embrace the idea that well, smartphones mean that mailing lists are redundant. I don't, I, I don't I, get I, that. I agree with you completely. The, the problem is not so much that emails are becoming less important to people using them less. Is there's cultural issues. They, I'm told in places like the Philippines, hardly anyone looks at, at email. They use they're entirely on their smartphones on Facebook. They won't see an email. That may or may not be true. I've not investigated that. So it may mean that we're going to get a smaller amount of support in the Philippines than we would have liked. Though obviously we use Facebook and stuff to reach them. But even Facebook, which we would have said 10 years ago was this cool thing that all the young people use, is now used primarily by middle-aged people. Indeed. You know, yeah. and, and yeah. who knows what's, you know, okay, Instagram is hip now, or Snapchat is, or TikTok is. What's going to be tomorrow? Facebook is, will, will, will decline. And it's interesting that we had 20 years ago, we had things like MySpace, right? Everyone, everyone's going to use MySpace. No one's going to use anything else. Friends reunited. I can go through a list of these. They all, <laughs> yeah. they all disappeared. And email remained year after year the way. And the biggest money-making companies, the ones who actually can't, you know, really know what they're doing. They're doing this for money, like Amazon, completely rely on email. Yeah. No, I think that's. A, I think you make a really good point that uh, that, that actually change. The only thing that is constant is change. Yes. And you know, things that seem to be here around forever could be here today and gone tomorrow. But email is a constant. But there's also a need to make sure that any campaigning organisation is ahead of what channels of communication are most effective for any given set of circumstances. Right. And I mean, that's a bit like a holy grail quest because you could have a whole company, a whole raft of activists all working on that and you'd still never bottom it. But nevertheless... <laughs> you do, look, when I look for models of... It's important that when, when you look for models of things where you're looking, right? Like, what do you look at as... Who do you emulate? Years ago, I, was, I used to build a lot of websites. I built a website for one of the European federations. I won't say which one. And I asked them, what kind of website would you say is the kind you'd like to have for your, your union? And they said, we'd like the website of the Greek presidency of the European Union as our model. Now, without even looking at it, can you imagine what kind of bureaucratic mentality <laughs> they were thinking of? I'm thinking kind of cool website. That you, no, they wanted the Greek presidency of the European Union. That was the model. When I look at models of campaigning, don't ask me about other unions. I, you know, I obviously I see what other unions do. I'm not always blown away. Campaigning, look at American presidential campaigns. And not only at the guys we like. Yeah. Look at the ones we don't like. Look at what they do. And I've heard people come over and speak, because of my work in the Democratic Party and, and for Bernie Sanders, I've heard people come over and speak about the Sanders campaign, the Obama campaigns, what we did, the, the tricks they tried, the things we learned. And I try to emulate that. Yeah. That's what we can learn from. We do things like a labor start, and I tried to, really hard to teach unions this. You do a mailing to your 70,000 people. You, if you're lucky, you get 10% of them support your campaign the first week. Then you mail them again. And you don't mail to the ones who signed the campaign. You mail to the ones who didn't sign the campaign. And good email tools have that built in. So everyone who didn't sign gets a reminder message. This, these are the ABCs of campaigning. So many organizations never do this, ever. I know my, I myself don't sign most things I'm sent. I never hear from them again. Uh, you know, and of course, you follow up, you tell people when you won a victory and so on, which very often we don't get. These are the ABCs, and you learn this large from campaigning from companies that make money and big successful political campaigns, because they've spent the money, and they've done the research, and you can learn from them. Absolutely. Well, we could we could sit and talk all day about this. Eric, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing such such valuable insights. And if if listeners are not aware of Labor Start, the website address is laborstart.org. And okay. you can spell it the American way or the British way. It doesn't really matter. That's, that's culture proofing, that is. that is. I like that. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Eric. Thank you, Sam. 
My thanks to Eric for a fascinating, fascinating tour around the Labour Star organisation and, of course, much food for thought in what he said. Uh, if you've been part of a Labour Star campaign, what was that experience like and, and did you win? What's your view on email lists? Have you found an alternative that works better for you? And from Friends Reunited to Fax Machines, goodness knows how things have changed and continue to do so. As ever, if you've got a view on any element of that conversation or got a view on who else we should invite onto the show, please do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. It's unionjews at makesyouthink.com by email, at jewsunion on Twitter. And as ever, if you head over to the makesyouthink.com website in the blog section there, you will find a companion post to this podcast contains all the links all the background all the signposting you can need if you want to follow up anything from eric's conversation with me or from any of the other contributors to the show and i just want to shout out a special thanks to derek blackadder because it was his excellent suggestion which led to eric coming on to the show today now no episode of union Jews would really be complete without Mel Sims and her thought for the week. Mel Sims, Professor of Work and Employment at Glasgow University, with more of a mini masterclass this week on the power, the potential and the pitfalls of digital organising. This week, I've been reflecting on how unions use social media spaces as part of their organising campaigns. And that's been driven in part by the fact that in the UK, we have a number of unions that have successfully taken votes to launch collective action of various kinds in the coming weeks and months. And one of those unions is my own union, the University and Colleges Union. The members of my union are often very active in digital spaces in social media and Twitter has become a really important public forum to discuss issues and to link activists and to share reactions to key developments. And I think it would be fair to say that the current leader of the union was elected partly thanks to a strong social media presence and her ability to build support in that space. But there are also real downsides, and I think many unions need to think this through very carefully. Throughout the 2000s, I was often asked to give talks about using social media, then it was typically Facebook, to organise. And I think many of the points that I made then still apply now. So I'm not saying that it's all negative. There can be real benefits in linking people together, and that's ultimately what social media does. One example from my own union relates to dispute about the pensions fund. And what Twitter's been able to do is link together activists and members with other pension analysts like journalists and people who work in the space of pensions, which has really undoubtedly helped to build knowledge in the membership base about this complex issue. But it's not without its downsides. And the first real area of concern relates to data security. So not only that employers and union busters can and do monitor these spaces heavily, but also the platform companies themselves. And we must never lose sight of the fact that these conversations are being held in public. We're kidding ourselves if we think these platforms are supportive of union objectives. I don't think it's stretching the argument too far to suggest they now have better data about mobilisation networks than we do as researchers in that field. That worries me because we have absolutely no clue what, if anything, they're doing with that data. Second, although social media platforms can and do engage new constituencies, some of which are excluded from other forms of organising, 
We need to be careful not to embed new patterns of exclusion. In the same way as we all learn as organisers not to arrange every meeting in the pub at 6pm, because that systematically disadvantages groups who either don't want to be in spaces selling alcohol or people who have other commitments at six o'clock, we need to think about how social media spaces embed new patterns of social exclusion. In other words, it's one space in which we can organise rather than the space in which we organise. And third, I think the risk of organised abuse is ever present in the social media space. The algorithms that drive content visibility can also facilitate organised pylons, organised groups of critics that target individuals and other forms of abuse. And they can come from relatively small constituency groups. Those risks are increased the wider following any individual has. And we need to not underestimate how traumatic and frightening that can be for people at the receiving end. So we need to be careful about the risks that our activists are exposing themselves to when they're vocal in these spaces. So although there are good reasons to be cautious and reflective about how we use these spaces, there are also really wonderful things that can happen. In recent years, I've seen dispersed activists, geographically dispersed activists who probably wouldn't have ever met in real life, meeting and sharing information in these virtual spaces and sometimes taking those conversations then into real life spaces. We've even seen at least one spontaneous mobilisation as a direct result of Twitter conversations. It's also a space where decision makers can present their positions, explain their justifications and sometimes even answer questions. So social media is a really powerful organising tool for unions, but it comes with real risks. And my personal view after looking at this for a very long time is that it can never really replace the graft and the personal touch of face-to-face conversations with individuals. Many thanks indeed, Mel. I think those three warnings that you issued around data security, um, about not putting all your eggs in the digital basket, about the potential for abuse are really well-made points. And of course, fits very neatly in alongside the discussion Eric and I were having about Labour Start earlier in the episode. And if this fascinating area is one that intrigues you, let me point you to the Why Not Lab and our good friend Christina Colclough, all about the interaction between digital work and workers. The Why Not Lab, all one word, dot com. And of course, she was a guest on this very podcast last year. Well, we are very nearly out of time for this episode. I really do hope you've enjoyed what you've heard over the last half hour or so, giving you some food for thought, made you think. Three closing shout outs before we go, before we part company for this time. There's a poll for the most influential health and safety practitioner of the year uh, going on at the moment. It's run by an outfit called SHP Online. Two candidates on the shortlist will be well known to the union movement in Tasca and Rory O'Neill. Voting is open till the 31st of December at shponline.co.uk. And they are both deserving and in need of your support. So uh, shponline.co.uk is where you need to go to vote. Second, Unite have secured a really important legal win in a case involving members and non-members at the Costal Components Firm in South Yorkshire. This has been going on for years, but the Supreme Court has recently handed down a ruling that makes it clear that it is unlawful to offer inducements to undermine collective bargaining. Really important principle now grounded, bedded in by that Supreme Court ruling. And finally, if you like union Jews, and who doesn't, 
you may also like some of the other shows accessible on the Labour Radio Podcast Network. The network is a portal through which you can access over 150 union-related shows, and Union Jews is proud to be part of it. So head over to labourradionetwork.org if you want to hear more. Don't forget, you can contact the show by email, unionjews at makesyouthink.com, and on Twitter at Jews Union. And every podcast episode has a companion blog post that's published on the makesyouthink.com website. And that blog post contains all the background, all the links, all the signposting that you will need if you want to follow up any of the issues that we've been talking about during this episode. So it just leaves me to say thank you. Thank you to Eric, to Mel, to Bazit, and above all, thank you to you for choosing to spend some of your valuable time with us. We've really enjoyed having you along. Union Jews will be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. So until then, stay safe, be kind, and I look forward to seeing you next time on Union Jews. Bye for now. The Union Jews podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.